Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The Trump administration's threat to increase tariffs on China is giving the market the jitters. The trade talks are set to resume Thursday in Washington. China's top negotiator will be there after some concern that he wouldn't show after the threat of new sanctions. Let's talk about what's happening with China with Phil Levy. He is a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He teaches at the North Kellogg School at Northwestern. Great to see you, Phil. Good to be back with you, Trump. All right. Now, it seems to be that the Trump administration has planted its flag on this idea that um, some of the things they're negotiating should be put into law and passed by the Chinese legislature. The Chinese seem to want things about copyright infringement and technology transfers to be a regulatory issue, not stamped into law. And that's where the dispute is largely. Is this the best place to plant your flag if you are the Trump administration? No, of course not. I think they got themselves into a fix. They wanted to have the kind of deal that would bring about deep-seated structural change in the Chinese economy. And yet they took an approach, including a timeline, that at best was going to get them a fairly shallow deal where the Chinese would agree to buy some more soybeans and liquid natural gas. Explain what kind of deep-seated changes in the Chinese economy the Trump administration thought it could get. Sure. I think they were trying to get better protection of intellectual property rights. They were trying to get better protections for investors who operated in China. They were trying to reduce the role of state-owned enterprises and subsidies. So China has a very different approach to its economy they wanted to go right at the core of that approach. They weren't just talking about a few tariffs. And China wants to, I mean, when you talk about the end of state subsidies, they want to challenge the U.S. and the rest of the world in robotics and artificial intelligence, all sorts of things that are really um, about uh, dominating technology in the next uh, century. That's right. Well, there's a couple ways to see that. You can see that as they're out for world domination. You could also see them as very concerned that their labor force is shrinking, that they're no longer the cheapest producer on the block, and they've got to find something that they're good at and fast before they get too old. All right. So it, 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 once again, the Trump administration's strategy here to to change this these massive behaviors inside of China. This is largely the uh, the thought of Robert Lighthizer and, and the, the guys who have won the trade battle in the Trump administration. And Peter Navarro, for example, author of Death by China. Yes, longstanding critics who – it's not clear whether they actually think China can be changed or they think that we'd be better off doing much less business with China overall. So um, is this um, something where China is looking at us and um, I was reading an article by a Chinese writer in the in the New York Times this morning and he was talking about how China had overreached. They had um, looked for domination, you know, in many different specters, the South China Sea, the, the, the road project. They're, they want to dominate and they've been vocal about their nationalism. And it was inevitable that somebody from the United States was going to take them down a peg, that they were going to uh, – that they'd been too bold and they jeopardized the good relations with the United States that had, over time had built up the Chinese economy. Uh, is that a is that a logical way to to frame this thing that's happening? There are elements of that that are right. There's certainly nationalism. They've certainly been aggressive in the South China Sea. 
I think it's more that there's been a long, longer-standing trend that the Chinese have a different approach to their economy than we do. That if you went back to, say, the global financial crisis, the Chinese, that had an impact on them. They thought, wait, we're supposed to imitate these guys who messed everything up? No, we have a different way. And therefore, the commitment that you had seen 20 years ago to reform in China, you have not seen more recently. So they're pursuing an economic path that has a much bigger role for the state, whether that has to do with world domination or whether that just makes them an extreme version of other countries like in Europe where you see a bigger state role. That's an open question. And the Trump administration walked in and saw this and and looked at it as this um, – this thing that was cheating them. They, yeah. they, they think – they feel like they're cheated all the time. That's right. And so I don't think the novelty with the Trump administration is the list of complaints because those complaints predated the Trump administration. Uh, President Obama, for example, had a summit and tried a meeting to try and address the problem of cyber attacks. It didn't hold very well, but the problems were recognized. There was a novelty with President Trump in that he put a focus on bilateral trade deficits very high up on that list, which is something that most trade agreement, most trade economists would disagree with very strongly, myself included. Um, so that was a switch. But the, the complaints have been there. He just decided to take a very aggressive approach to this and was much more prone to wield tariffs as a way to get what he wanted. Now, before we get to the tariff part um, – uh, the uh, the deal that he he could possibly the Trump administration could possibly get here and sign, um, what does that look like? You're you're in a you you think you're they seem to think they're in an enforcement pickle that they don't they don't have any way to make China hold to these things that they haven't been holding on in the past. Um, so they want it in law. Uh, how did does that make sense? No. It doesn't. There's a short answer. It's actually your your question about uh, what does the deal look like is a really hard one. And I think that's part of what they were coming up against because there was no plausible deal that was going to deliver what they wanted for a, for a number of reasons. No, having the the Chinese legislature pass a law does not solve all your problems. It's not that kind of place. You still would have issues. I think – the change in the Chinese stance was seen as backsliding and got the U.S. Trade Representative, Ambassador Lighthizer, quite upset. And you know what the president does when he gets upset. You tweet. So that's what happened and that's where we, we were as of Sunday. Um, but it's, it's very hard to know what kind of deal would satisfy things. To me, one of the keys to understanding at least the Chinese behavior in all this is that they have already struck four deals with the Trump administration. Two of them were with cabinet secretaries and they were trashed within a week of signing. So I think the Chinese are sort of – are more than a little suspicious that there is no solution to this puzzle. You keep playing along. You hope things don't break. But there's not an accommodation that they can make which will bring trade peace. So there's no bottom line to the U.S.? Not that I have seen, no. <laughs> and uh – President Xi seems to have distanced him, himself somewhat from the uh, negotiations. He um, sends this envoy, Mr. Uh, Leo, and he and then, then then that's it. Yeah. So I think right. Nobody really wants to be closely associated with failure. These didn't seem to be going in a good direction. On the other hand, we shouldn't minimize what Liu He 
is. He's, he's sort of a very high-ranking Chinese official and sort of there as the personal representative of Xi Jinping. So when I was talking with some Chinese officials and saying, maybe you guys should consider a summit where these – where the leaders play golf and they really work everything out, their stance – this was some months back – was, well, we did that. We had Liu He come out and that was – he was the emissary of the president. So now, of course, we all, both know that's not the same photo op. Um, but that was how they had perceived it. So this is not a slight that it's Liu He doing this. Um, it, but on the other hand, I think um, Xi Jinping has not been at all anxious to play the game where he shows up at Mar-a-Lago and is told, you either agree to all these terms or you're going to have to go home with your tail between your legs. I'm talking with Phil Levy. He's a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. We're talking about the U.S.-China trade uh, fracas. Now, when we get down to the uh, likelihood of tariffs, what do you think? I I mean, behaviorally, this is um, typical of Donald Trump to go in there, make a last-minute flurry of threats before cutting some kind of deal. And I think that may be what he intends here. Um, I think it's likely to backfire on him. For one thing, the government is not as nimble as, say, a you know family real estate business. So if you have to – what we saw the government do this week, they're publishing a notice in the Federal Register that these tariffs are coming on. You, you set these wheels in motion and they're doing it I think for midnight Friday, which will be right in the midst of the negotiations. There's the other problem, which is that this politically makes it extraordinarily difficult for the Chinese to accommodate because they don't want to be seen as giving in to public threats. They reacted badly. There was some talk of whether they would even come. So that may have been the intention. I don't think it's going to work as a nudge towards a a big deal. If the tariffs come online, how big a deal is that? I think it's quite a big deal and it goes beyond – the fact that you're seeing tariffs go from 10% to 25% on $200 billion worth of imports, which is significant. Don't get me wrong. That's a big deal. The other part to this is the earlier tariffs, I'm not sure they had the full effect that they might because it was a strong belief that they were about to go. They were temporary. So you didn't have businesses think we need to really rework our supply chains because if this was a short-term problem, you weather it as a short-term problem. If we see a breakdown this week, there may be a a significant reassessment that this isn't a short-term problem and that perhaps President Trump actually means it, all that stuff that he's been tweeting out about being a tariff man and and thinking that these are good for the country. What does that mean for the people who are losing on this? And there are certainly consumers who pay for the tariffs in higher washing machines. But uh, there's also farmers who are really getting skunked on soybeans and things like that, that you – I mean, Donald Trump would not want to permanently um, hurt these people. It's bad news for them. And so you named two groups. There's the consumers who are getting things from China and those who have been subject to retaliation such as soybean or sorghum farmers. There's a third group in there which is American producers because the way that a lot of American producers are able to meet their price points and do things in an economic fashion is some portion of their good is made in China. If those parts – like some part of a medical imaging machine is is coming from China and all of a sudden you have to pay 25% on that, that puts you at a real disadvantage to your, say, Canadian or German competitor. 
Well, does the Trump administration feel it's in a good position because the economy is going so well? Unemployment is really low. The stock market's really high. The GDP is really good. So therefore, they can press their case, kind of backseat all these losers and say, we're, you know, we're still winning. We can, we can push on. Yeah. Oh, they've been upfront about that. And it's a combination. It's the U.S. economy is doing well, which it is. And that the Chinese economy has been slowing down, which it has. Now, that has not been entirely because of tariffs. They have a whole range of other issues. But I think that has emboldened the Trump administration. It's not clear that he actually needed a lot of encouragement to move towards tariffs. But even so, this seemed to provide it. Um, do you think that after two days of negotiations here, we're, we will see an end to this? Or do you think we are going to um, see what you th- <laughs> described as the Chinese bottom line, which is there, there is never an end to this? I think you will have a continued Chinese willingness to come up with a, a face-saving deal if the Trump administration wants it. It will not be promises of sort of deep-seated change that they were initially looking for. But there will be something they'll be able to show around. Those soybean farmers will be able to talk about new purchases. The Trump administration is making it very hard to have a deal like that. That looks much less likely than it did a few days ago. And what you could have is something of an impasse where the Chinese said, we came to negotiate. The U.S. slapped on further tariffs. The the Trump administration has never been enthusiastic about removing tariffs in any circumstances, not as the outcome of a negotiation, not after a free trade agreement. So – this may just sort of leave us stuck in a worse position, um, and it's not clear how we get out. I was interested in looking at some of the overall trade figures with the United States and other countries and seeing that in the last couple months, Mexico is our leading trading partner. It's kind of popped up a little bit over Canada and China, and they're benefiting from a decrease in trade with China. Yeah. So what happens is when you start changing the price of doing business with individual countries, when you all of a sudden say that it costs 25% more to to get something from China, companies and consumers start looking to redirect and and to reshuffle. And so there's a natural – Mexico has long been one of the U.S. top trading partners. This tilts things in their favor and tilts things in in Canada's favor as well. But it's – you know, there's there's a relative discount. We need to be careful about that because at some point, companies will say, you know, if I produced in Canada, then I wouldn't have to pay those tariffs on China at all. Maybe that looks even better. Well, uh, very interesting. And we'll see what happens with the trade talks. They begin Thursday in Washington. Phil Levy is a senior fellow on the global economy at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He teaches at Northwestern's Kellogg School. Thanks a lot for joining us again and talking trade. Good to be with you. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the possibility of voter suppression in India. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. 
India's elections are epic undertakings. 900 million people are expected to vote at over a million polling stations. Five of the seven stages of India's current elections are now over. The results will be announced on May 23rd. India's enthusiasm for democracy is an inspiration. But this election cycle has also seen something that looks not so inspirational, the possibility of voter suppression. There's the possibility that nearly 70 million Muslims and Dalits could be left off the voter rolls, millions of women too. Sumia Shankar is writing about it in Foreign Policy. Her article is Millions of Voters Are Missing in India. Thanks a lot for joining us, Sumia Shankar. Thank you for having me. Uh, It sounds like a lot of the information about this possible voter suppression uh, was ferreted out by um, an app called Missing Voters. What is that? So, Missing Voters is is a very interesting uh, software uh, development in India right now, which basically scrapes through the data of the Election Commission called the Electoral Rules in India and finds out, as per single voter households, how many uh, people could be missing from the Electoral Rules. And it it assumes that uh, nearly 120 million people are missing right now uh, in the uh, 2019 elections, out of which an overwhelming majority are Muslims and Dalits, which is the lowest group in the caste system in India. Well, that is such a staggering number, 120 million, even it, mm-hmm. you know, for in the India's size of big numbers. But that's you know more than 10 percent of the population. Uh, is there a with, with the people who are disenfranchised here? Is there a general uproar about this? So, um, unfortunately, there is a lack of. Uh, both education and activism in India around the issue of voter suppression at large, even though it has existed in prior forms uh, even before the 2019 elections. And especially with regard to the Muslim and Dalit communities, uh, people do not often, uh, you know, are very active about it when it comes to political protests. The conversation has just begun in India. So there is uh, not so much, not so many protests happening on the ground right now as there should should be. I imagine people go to the polls and are just surprised that their name is not not there and they are not registered. Is that like what the typical situation would be? Oh, yes, absolutely. And there has been uproar on social media about it, of course, for people who have access to social media and have a voice on social media. And there are people who are not Dalits and Muslims. Uh, You know, a lot of women have been missing from the rules as well, who have been posting on Twitter and Facebook about how they landed up at the voting booth with a valid voter ID and were rejected their right to vote and they had to come home dismayed. Uh, That has, of course, been going on the rounds. But in terms of collective rallying, there has not been as much. Now, the idea that um, most of these disenfranchised voters are Muslims and Dalits and women, uh, I wonder if we can break that down a bit. Is that, um, that you know, the BJP government, is that an intentional thing with Muslims and Dalits? It's actually very difficult to, uh, you know, talk about the intent right now. Uh, what what we're 
what what we are thinking right now is that it is an unholy mix of intent and uh, just you know plain old inefficiency because india is such a huge large bustling democracy that the election commission is often overburdened by the task of enrolling new voters deleting uh, people who are now bogus voters and stuff like that so it's a huge undertaking uh, by by in terms of just the size of it so uh, the intentionality is yes yet to be proven even though accusations have been flowing from all angles um, there there is a there's there's a particular uh, you know, form called the Form 7, which can be used by anybody to basically disenfranchise anybody from voting in India. And uh, there have been accusations that uh, mass Form 7s have been have been filed uh, with regard to voters belonging to a particular party. Uh, and, and uh, you know, if you know that some people are, are about to vote in a certain way owing to their religious or regional affiliations, you can file uh, Form 7 and de-enlist them from voting. So those are the nature of uh, accusations flying around right now, but we do not know, we, we cannot say anything about the veracity of those accusations right now. So uh, but this idea of a Form 7, why is there a Form 7? How can you possibly, exactly. why, why would you need something like that unless you were uh, you know, doing you know, something nasty? Exactly. So uh, it, 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 that's a big question mark on the Election Commission of India, which is also, by the way, reeling under huge accusations of, uh, you know, not uh, uh, reprimanding the, the current leading party for its immense violations of the model code of conduct, what we call the model of co- code of conduct during the elections. But with regard to Form 7 in particular, the or the original idea was that Form 7 would let a lot of bogus voters who, who um, you know, uh, change their... Uh, domicile from one state to another for, and and would pre- pre- uh, would prevent them from voting so in india if i am registered as a voter from delhi uh, and my domicile is in delhi i will only have to vote from Delhi unless I change my residential address. For for a huge number of the unorganized economy, you know, the, the working class people who keep moving from cities to cities, they ultimately end up losing their vote because they're for six months they're in Delhi, six months they're in Bombay. Uh, and that just, uh, that, that's just the nature of India's economy right now. The election commission's rules right now do not serve to, to, to that nature of India's economy, which is also another reason that Form 7 should actually be dealt away with, but it is not. With the uh, disproportionate number of Muslims and Dalits who are disenfranchised there, though, it's... um I imagine you can tell how, because of names that you could could go about and, and, and knock people out? Yes, absolutely. You know, it's actually common practice in India because just your name could reveal uh, your religion, your uh, region, even your caste for sure, and also your gender. So uh, with identity politics ruling India right now, it's very, very easy to uh, figure out these things just by somebody's name. I know in the United States, this would be calling, this would be called profiling or something. But uh, in India, it's actually uh, not such an uncommon practice. 
You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell. I'm talking with Sumia Shankar about an article she wrote in Foreign Policy, Millions of Voters Are Missing in India. India's elections are ongoing. The results are going to be on May 23rd. And I wanted to ask more specifically about women, and there seem to be a high number of women who are being disenfranchised here. Is that the same – do you think that's the same thing that is happening with Muslim and, Muslims and Dalits is happening with women? Uh, it could be, and it could also be not the case because uh, with with women, there's a there's a lot of patriarchal issues, which is also which which could also rule their decision of say not applying for a voter ID card in the first place because uh, one of the requirements there is to have a photograph of yourself, which could you know uh, effectively mean that a, a woman who is shy of protecting her modesty would not want to be clicked. Uh, this is just one of the reasons that I've I've discussed with the experts who are working on this phenomenon right now. The other could, of course, be not revealing the age of the woman voter. For instance, you have to be at least 18 years of age to be able to vote. Um, and a lot of families, even men could pressurize women to, to, to not go out and vote because that would reveal their age in society. These could just be some of the re- reasons attributed to, you know, uh, a sense of patriarchy on the ground. Uh, but there could also be uh, intentional uh, deletion of, of women's voters' names because just because the numbers are so so staggering, we cannot rule that out. I know that there's another issue here that seems related, and it has to do with citizenship in India and who uh-huh. is um, qualifies to be a citizen and who doesn't. Um, could you explain what's happening with uh, citizenship? Yeah, of course. So one of the bigger issues seen in the northeastern states of India, which has uh, a huge uh, population from Bangladesh, uh, uh, you know, who uh, who moved to India in, uh, after the 1971 war. Uh, what we are seeing there is that a lot of people who have voted in previous elections will take a valid voter ID card and go to the booths and are now rejected their right to vote because uh, there was uh, there was an NRC or a National Registry of Citizens, which was brought in again by the Modi government. Um, uh, you know, a few months back, which basically has effectively disenfranchised 4 million people uh, from voting and from being Indian citizens. So uh, it's it's a very contentious pol- uh, policy, uh, you know, the root of which is also the Citizenship Amendment Bill, which would effectively, if brought into a play, which would effectively give citizenship to all Hindus, Sikhs and Buddhists from all around the subcontinent and would strip a lot of illegal immigrants, which the BJP's party president's president calls termites uh, from their citizenship, and who are all Muslims, of course. Now, that sounds like a scandalous thing to happen, to be, to be disenfranchising a bunch of people and, and kind of uh, designating another bunch of people. Yes, absolutely. But it's, you know, if you look at it, it's just uh, much in line with the BJP's overall uh, Hindu nationalism philosophy, uh, with which they've been ruling India since the past five years, and which forms the basic, uh, you know, ethos of their uh, of their construct of nationalism. So it's it's not really that unobvious either. Do you think pluralism is dead in India? Um, it's not really dead, but it's definitely on its route to being dead. If if the BJP comes back with an overwhelming majority, the chances are thin. But if it does, then, uh, of course, the largest attack on uh, India's social fabric would mean that 
pluralism, pluralism would be dead in India in the, the next few years. I think the most uh, the, the overwhelming impression of most people in this country about India is that um, there's this secular, pluralistic, democratic India, and that that is um, that's kind of a, a core great thing about India. Um, and is that not is that changed? Do you think that's permanently changed by the BJP now? No, I don't think that's permanently changed by the BJP uh, because, uh, you know, with the BJP's assault on, say, minority rights and on, on this idea of India where the secular fabric has been intact, so to say, more or less, for the past 70 years, there is also huge resurgence of, uh, you know, activism and, and, and of protests with the civil society leading it. And, of course, uh, India's, you know, 400 opposition parties forming these very intricate alliances to keep the BJP out of power, which is which is a very interesting phenomenon in, in India which is going on right now. We're saying that that the current election is less between the BJP and the opposition Congress, but more about the regional parties in India. So it's it's uh, really under threat right now, but uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's dead because there is also a lot of hope. But with regard to what has happened in the, fi- in the past five years, 168 cases of lynchings of Muslims and Dalits, uh, you know, all perpetrated by people um, f- f- from a certain section, section of society who are then protected by the ruling party and given absolute impunity, uh, the massive assault on freedom of speech and expression, uh, the killing of journalists and activists, the jailing of activists, uh, that definitely points to a huge, huge scare. But uh, I, I would not lose hope as yet. Um, but if there is... Um if the BJP government continues, I mean, they could do hugely symbolic things like uh, the Babri Mosque in Ayodhya. Uh, there's a lot of Hindu nationalists who want to build on the site of this former 16th century mosque, which was uh, demolished by Hindu nationalists in 1992. Uh, that kind of thing would be a big symbolic push towards the uh, kind of a more Hindu nationalist state. Oh yes, absolutely. The Babri Masjid is is a big, uh, long-standing issue that the BJP was not able to push through. Of course, because uh, the the issue is still with the courts right now. So ultimately, the BJP has decided to listen to the courts on this matter. But then there are also other contentious policies, like uh, you know, just scrapping uh, the special powers given to Kashmir, uh, which which would effectively enable anybody from the rest of India to buy land there, which is also being called an anti-minority, anti-Muslim measure by a lot of Modi's detractors. And of course, bringing in the Citizenship Amendment Bill, which would effectively make India like Israel, which which is, you know, a state where all Jews from around the world can claim that they have have a stake to or they have citizenship to. India, of course, was founded on on the foundations of being a secular uh, liberal democracy. That would completely shatter the constitution and the constitutional values of India. So there is there is a lot at stake if the BJP comes to power and if the BJP gets a majority in the upper house, which it which it does not have right now, which is also why it really needs to come back to power to say push the citizenship amendment bill and scrap Article 370 of Kashmir. Uh, it would really need an upper house, a majority in the upper house. If that happens, then definitely the nature of India will change uh, with finality. Sumia Shankar wrote about millions of voters missing in India in foreign policy. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the elections. The results are expected on May 23rd. Thanks very much. Thank you. 
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about transnational justice in Africa. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. WBEZ, I'm Jerome McDonald. The MacArthur Foundation last month announced an effort to bolster transitional justice. The African Transitional Justice Legacy Fund will initially help seven West African countries. Ivan Dakwa Poku is a senior program officer of human rights at the MacArthur Foundation, and she oversees the program. Great to meet you. Likewise. Wonderful to be here. Now, you know a little bit about The Prosecutors, the film we were just mentioning. Um, the MacArthur Foundation's involved with that. You were at the premiere in London? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Leslie Thomas and the foundation go way back. Um, at the inception of putting this film together, we supported some of the early work, and we have continued to be a partner, and we're actually uh, working with Leslie to uh, show the film in Nigeria this June at a big event uh, addressing uh, sexual and gender-based violence and conflict in the northeast of Nigeria. So very exciting very worthy film, and uh, we're happy to support it. Let's talk a little bit about the Africa Transitional Justice Legacy Fund. Um, where did the idea for this come from? How did this? Uh, how did the ball get rolling here? So uh, MacArthur, in partnership with a private uh, U.S.-based foundation, was part of a consortium of funders that supported international criminal justice efforts on the continent. Um, after several years of supporting that fund, we realized that there was a dearth in funding in West Africa where we had cases of either past uh, trans past unresolved transitional justice issues or future emerging issues. So we had old context and new context. And we uh, came together and decided that it was time to stop putting resources in areas that had funders and, and, and more resources such as Eastern Africa. We had worked in Uganda, DRC, and Kenya for several years, and our funder collaborative was supporting efforts there. So when we saw that there were pressing issues and unresolved issues in West Africa, we decided to come together to address this. What are some of the transitional justice issues in West Africa you wanted to focus on there? So, for example, uh, we will be focusing on northern Nigeria or northeastern Nigeria, looking at the Boko Haram insurgency and what it has done to people and communities in northern Nigeria. We have grantees working with the military, for example, to rehabilitate former Boko Haram uh, fighters who want to return to their communities. Uh, there's a program called the Operation Safe Corridor Initiative that almost initiates them 
back into going into their communities before they were recruited to work for Boko Haram. In places like Liberia and Sierra Leone, you know that they've had active conflict in those countries for several years, but they still have many unresolved issues with communities, with reparations. So our fund is going to support these old efforts actually achieve results for victim communities. Now, you're working with the African Union Transitional Justice Policy, Transitional Justice Organization. What, what are they, what's the African Union doing? So um, about eight years ago, um, there was a report by a group of eminent Africans called uh, the Elders, and they wrote a report about the state of impunity and justice and reconciliation on the African continent. And out of the report, they suggested that the African Union take the lead in developing a continent-wide policy that would provide a roadmap for countries emerging out of conflict or in post-conflict situations on how to provide redress and peace and justice. So we partnered with the Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliation, a not-for-profit based in South Africa, and the uh, Department of Political Affairs of the AU to support the drafting and development of this policy. It took eight years, but last month in Egypt, the policy was officially launched after it was unanimously adopted at the 32nd Ordinary Session of Africa's Heads of States. So it's a really exciting development, and it's a really comprehensive policy that is supposed to guide all of Africa's nations coming out of or grappling with issues of conflict. And what exactly will the nations do according to the policy? If they follow the policy to the letter, what happens? So um, the African Union was um, strategic in placing implementation of the policy uh, on the burden of implementation on national governments. So if they follow the policy, one, they're going to move away from looking at justice as merely prosecutorial. So most of the time when a country has gone through uh, mass atrocity, people are looking for justice. And usually people think about justice in terms of we need to catch the bad guys and we need to send them to jail. But that's not the only justice that conflict-ridden communities need. They need different forms of justice, and they need it to be prioritized equally. So, for example, a country following the policy will look for those most responsible for the conflict and prosecute them. But at the same time, they will also offer reparations and economic justice to communities that have suffered at the hands of these perpetrators. They will restore them to life before the conflict ever happened, and they will provide some kind of acknowledgement and memorial to say, we know what you went through, we understand what you're suffering right now, and we acknowledge the role that the state or whomever played in causing you this kind of harm. So it's almost like a comprehensive, all-encompassing approach to looking at justice from the lens of victim communities. 
I'm talking with Yvonne Dakwa-Poku. She's Senior Program Officer of Human Rights at the MacArthur Foundation, and we're talking about their effort to bolster transitional justice in West Africa. They've got a new Africa Transitional Justice Legacy Fund that they started last week. Is all this basically, it sounds like a response to um, the International Criminal Court and the failures and the reputation that the International Criminal Court um, brought on in Africa. It was, uh, you know, pe- people in Africa looked at it like, oh, they are coming in after only our African leaders and they are attacking, you know, these are kind of uh, colonialist uh, powers who are coming after us and telling us they're ba- we're bad, but they're not. And so um, how big of a factor is that in all this? Absolutely. That's, that's a very valid point. So as you have rightly stated, there has been tensions between what the International Criminal Court is doing on the continent and how they're going about it and the case of, okay, always characterizing Africa as a continent of impunity where nothing gets done, where justice never happens. So as part of the report that was issued um, uh, to the African Union, the charge was how do we articulate justice in our own voices? How is justice representative of the contextual realities that we face? How do we take examples of past efforts on the continent that have worked and make it more standard for the rest of us to follow? So it was a desire and a growing momentum to have justice articulated according to cultural religious, political principles, as well as articulated in the voices of those who have to oversee the aftermath of conflict and those who have to endure the aftermath of conflict. So that did play a role, and that did galvanize a new movement that is requiring that justice be homegrown. Now, the legacy fund you set up, uh, you're working with partners in a partner primarily in Ghana, mm-hmm. who's uh, explain who they are and what they'll do with um, the funds. So the Institute for Democratic Governance, IDEG, that's uh, headquartered in Accra, Ghana, is sort of the administrator of the fund, is where we house the fund. They'll oversee the day-to-day activities and make sure that everything is running smoothly. But besides that, the fund has staff. So right now we have three staff members, uh, an executive director, a grants manager, and a general program associate who would be responsible for developing the strategy, doing the outreach in the seven initial countries that we're focusing in, uh, soliciting proposals for uh, work in the region, engaging with regional bodies. We will continue our engagement with the African Union, with the African Commission through this fund, and also vetting and making grants. So while the while IDEG is is the pass through entity that's that has primary oversight. Uh, there's also a dedicated staff that will be working directly with the grantees and directly with policymakers to advance the strategic goals of the fund. In an ideal situation, as you build up uh, transitional justice mechanisms in West Africa, what would you hope would happen? 
We're hoping that we bring justice closer to home or justice directly home for victims in communities that have suffered conflict. I think one of the biggest criticisms with the ICC process was that justice was being regulated from a distance and that it did not sufficiently look at some of the causes and enablers and and the roots of mass human rights violations. So we're hoping that because justice is happening at your doorstep, it will take into account things that are needed, that are critical to lasting and sustainable peace and reconciliation in these areas. For example, uh, looking at local mechanisms and traditional justice mechanisms, what works. We had Gachacha in Rwanda. We had other examples in Uganda, those types of things. Ivan Dakwapoku is Senior Program Officer of Human Rights at the MacArthur Foundation. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about your new Africa Transitional Justice Legacy Fund for seven West African countries. Thank you very much. Thank you. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll be talking with the former head of Homeland Security, Janet Napolitano. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.